You hear me? I'm always real skeptical of these Backstreet Boys in uh, sync mics. That I had. all right, good. Um, like uh, like Nick said, I'm called Dr. Walker at the at the university, but you can just call me Tim if we're here. Well, all of you can just call me Tim if you're a student. We can talk about that later, but you can call me Tim too when we're here because a, a doctor is not not an office of the church, just a pastor or a deacon is. So um, I'm just Tim to you guys. Darla and I and the family joined the church uh, about two weeks ago. We've been attending since basically July. We moved here in June. So if any of you are thinking about joining the church, just know about two weeks after you join the church, you're going to have to preach a sermon in front of, uh, in front of the, the church. I'm joking. I'm joking. Uh, I think Jake asked me to do this uh, several uh, several months ago and one of the one of the main reasons that he did was, uh, I think, because of some of my area of study uh, in my PhD in ethics, and this being uh, the Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And um, instead of giving like a lecture on the Sanctity of Human Life per se, I want us to look at a passage of Scripture that really gets to the core of our identity as Christians, our identity as followers of Jesus, and the calling that that is, pl- is placed on our life because of who Jesus is and what this text is about. So if you have a, a Bible, uh, I invite you to stand and open with me to Philippians 2. So if you have a Bible, please stand and open with me to Philippians 2, uh, starting in verse 3. This is a very... Uh, famous, for lack of a better word, well-known uh, verse passage of Scripture in the history of the church because of what it says about the identity and nature of Jesus and what that means for us. So starting in verse 3, and normally guys start in verse 2, but I want us to start, or in verse 5, uh, but I'm going to start in verse 3, and Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, consider more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Adopt the same attitude as that is Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity, And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father." Would y'all pray with me? Uh, Father, what we are not, we ask that you please make us. Uh, What we know not, we ask that you would teach us from your word. And what what we have not, we ask that you would give us. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus and by the illumination of the Spirit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Um, I almost pushed that off the end there. That would have been interesting. I have a habit of leaning on, on pulpits when, I, when I'm in front of the church. Um, so this passage, you may be wondering to yourself, like, what does this have to do with the sanctity of human life? What does this have to do with the dignity and integrity of human life? And the way that this is normally you know, talked about in churches and in public is relationship to our engagement with culture, engagement with politics, engagement with the law. And because Sanctity Human Life Sunday was a Sunday that got set apart by uh, Ronald Reagan, I believe by executive order uh, in 1984, I think it was, for churches around the nation, it was Sanctity Human Life Sunday for churches and people around the nation to stop and pause and remember the sanctity of human life, especially as it results to the issue of abortion. And churches battled within themselves about whether and it, whether it should become part of our own church calendars and what we should do together and stop and recognize this on Sunday morning. And much has already been said this morning about that and what we're, do, what we're doing as a church to help support efforts to support mothers and to... Um, and to engage with the issue of abortion. But I want to speak a little more broadly here because the issue of abortion and the issue of the sanctity of human life um, is not merely like a political, cultural issue, issue of human rights, but is it, at its core is a gospel issue. Because the question is, is does Jesus have lordship over our lives, over every human life, every, over every image bearer that is in this world. And if the question is, is whether we are lords over our lives in every area of our life, or is Jesus Lord of our lives in every area of our lives? And in light of the 60 million little ones whose lives have been extinguished in the womb since Roe v. Wade in 1973. We have to ask ourselves, especially in light of the fact that Roe v. Wade was overturned by the Supreme Court this summer, the issue was pushed back to the states. That's a whole nother talk about how that's playing out right now and how to engage in that. But they're still happening. They're still happening. Life is still being taken in the womb. Little one's lives are still being taken in the womb, and we have to ask ourselves, how are we as Christians called to live in light of this, in light of this reality of Roe v. Wade being overturned in the wake of that and how it's playing out in our culture and in politics and in our lives? And my simple answer to that is, based on this text, is that we are to live just as we've always been called to live. We are to live just as we always have been called to live. And that's lives of sacrificial, humble servanthood for the sake of others. Lives of sacrificial, humble servanthood for the sake of others. Because that's what Jesus exemplified perfectly for us and is in this text right here. This text 
like I said, is a foundational text in Christian history from the get-go of the first century up through the Council of Nicaea, all after that, and since then, people love to debate this text. I started reading a commentary on it um, this morning after uh, all my preparation was done and everything, and I just quit because I'm like, dude, I don't want to hear about all the 15 different interpretations of this text and all the, all the debates that have happened over this text because this text is about the nature of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. And so everyone has gone to this text because it talks about, it talks about Jesus being in the form of God. You have that language there of Jesus being in the form of God and though being in the form of man, he humbled himself or he emptied himself, your translation may say. There's been debates about that word, debates about what it means to be in the form of God, to be in the nature of God, to be in the form of a man. And so they've debated this issue. We've debated this issue. And the Christian tradition, as you, can, as you know, from the Council of Nicaea on through all the councils, all the creeds, our own Baptist faith and message, we believe that this passage simply teaches that Jesus is God and that Jesus is man as the creeds say well not that we're bound to creeds we're bound to scripture they say Jesus is truly God he's everything that it means to say that God is God he is God and everything it means to say for someone to be a human he is human and he is united in a hypostatic union of those two natures in the person of Jesus, the one who came and became obedient to death on the cross. And so, you know, people, people and theologians, we love this passage. We love talking about this passage. But that's why I started back in verse 3 to think about what, why did Paul even bring this up. Many people, as you see in your Bible, it's kind of set off as poetry and stanzas. Many people think because of the structure of it that it was an early, early Christian hymn or creed that the early churches said in their, in their church services, confessing the identity and worshiping Jesus as God. And even in that context it predating Paul, why is Paul bringing this up? And that is because in verse 3, he says that we're not to look, he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, considered others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to their own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And then goes into that. And there's this constant... Um, pattern in scripture especially in Paul where he he builds the foundation for the call on our life and how we're supposed to live as Christians in theological truth not just bear like beat it over our heads go love your neighbor or go lay down your life for your neighbor he always goes through 
theology. You think in the, the epistles to Ephesians, to Romans, to all these things, he's laying out all this theology about who Jesus is. Then he says, therefore, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church. So our, our callings on our lives, our callings to be Christians is rooted in theology, rooted in doctrine, rooted in reality of who God is and what he's done for us and in the world. Now, he does it a little bit backwards here, but it's still logically the same. So my first point is, is that our lives for others' sake is based on his life for ours. So our life for others' sake is based on his life for ours. So the text here is for our adoration of Jesus and who he is. But it's also for our emulation of our character, our emulation of our character, of his character, that Paul lays out here in Scripture. The text here is is for us to behold who Jesus is, to reflect upon and worship Jesus, and to imitate Jesus. Paul says regularly in Scripture, at least a few times, but it's a theme too, he says, imitate me as I imitate Jesus. So we're called to imitate Jesus, but that's rooted first in the gospel and what Christ has done for us. So kind of jumping back and giving it some context, there's this drama in Philippians. You know, they, they, in chapter 1, if you read through, there's this persecution evidently coming from without, this persecution from without. There's these people preaching the gospel for wrong motives, and Paul's enchained, and you know, he's probably a little frustrated by that and wants to get out there and, and preach uh, with, with right motives, there, there's some persecution that obviously he's under as an apostle, and there's this persecution from without. Then he moves into chapter 2, and there's this strife kind of happening within the body of Philippians. And this is why he says here in verse 3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit. So this idea of selfish ambition, this kind of drive to promote oneself at all means and all costs above everyone else. And this idea of conceit, uh, your translation may say vain glory, it's this empty glory, this empty glory that's not rooted in seeking the glory of God in all that we do. So what happens is, is divisions and conflicts happens. It's basically the root of our sinful nature and our selfishness and wanting to dominate and make others do what we want them to do and be what we want them to be and get what we can get out of them for ourselves and for our sakes and for our good and for our promotion. That's what's happening. We don't know exactly uh, over what reasons that was for, but that was happening there. And Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of conceit. But um, in humility and humbling yourself, count others better than you. Think of their interests as more important than your own. Everyone should look not only to his own interests, but rather to the interest 
of others. That's how unity happens in a body, is by thinking of other interests before our own. That's how unity happens in our families, by looking at the other's interests before our own. And it reminded me of a passage from James. And James says in James 4, he says, What causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Our passions are at war within us, causing divisions and quarrels. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it only on yourself, but says on your own passions. You adult people, you do not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of God, uh, the friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So James is saying the same thing that these divisions in our midst and quarrels in our midst as a church, as a local church, as that local church that James is speaking to, those local churches, our families, our friendships, what are they rooted in? They're rooted in our own sinful passions, our own sinful passions to promote ourselves. And the opposite of this conceit and this passion, self-passion, selfish, self-centered, driven way of living is the example we have in Jesus. The example we have in Jesus. Not just the example we have in Jesus, but what Jesus actually did for us in his thinking of others' interests before himself. And so we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions here. Am I competing for people's attention and approval? Do I find it difficult, difficult or easy to rejoice in the success of others? Am I conceited? Do I think I'm superior to people in my midst? Am I concerned with the needs of others or only my own my own needs. And then Paul says, Jesus, thank God, was not like that. Jesus answered all those questions per, you know, perfectly in the way that he lived his life out. So starting in verse 5, it says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So that's that bridge of you don't need to be selfish and conceited. And only thinking of yourself, only thinking of your needs, only thinking of what you can get out of everything. Have this same attitude, or your translation say, may say mind, or it may say mindset. Have this same attitude as Christ Jesus. That's that bridge, and then he lays out this attitude of Christ Jesus. That's how we find unity in the body. It says... Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not count, consider equality with God something to be grasped. And there's a lot going on here, but when it says form and nature, he's saying Jesus was in the very uh, 
essence of what it means to be God, God. But he didn't count that equality with God a thing to be grasped. That meant he didn't count this as something that he had to sit there and wring his hands over and try to steal from someone or get at the expense of other people. He already had it. He was completely confident and secure in his identity as being equal with God. So he didn't have to do that. And he, this shows his selflessness, his selflessness and other-focused nature. He did not consider quality with God something to be grasped because he already had that equality. F.F. Bruce says the point is that he did not treat his equality with God as an excuse for self-assertion or self-aggrandizement. On the contrary, he treated it as an occasion for renouncing every advantage or privilege. For renouncing every advantage or privilege. How many times do we think, and I'm not trying to, um, I'm not trying to, to beat anybody over the head because I'm guilty of this. How many times do we think that we have this privilege or we have this advantage, therefore we get to have this right of doing X, Y, and Z at the expense of other people? When Jesus actually did, perfectly had, the privilege and right and advantage to do whatever he wanted to do, as he repeatedly alludes to in his story, he tells, he tells Pilate, I could, I could basically wipe out the whole Roman Empire right now if I wanted to, but I'm not. I'm willingly humbling myself and laying my life down for others. Some people say when it says that he emptied himself, he didn't encounter equality with God, something to be grasped. Instead, he emptied himself. There's been a lot of debate about that, meaning does this mean that he emptied himself of his godhood, of his, of his equality with God? Well, the short answer is no, because that, empty, that emptying is linked to his assuming the form of a servant. The emptying is him divesting and foregoing the advantages and privileges that he has as being equal with God to humble himself and humble himself for what? To be obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross for our sins. This is the epitome of humility. That's what we're called to be in this world based on what Christ has done for us and the example that he's given us. This humility to constantly put others before ourselves. That's what Jesus was doing for us. C.S. Lewis uh, has this really good quote that I always am reminded of that essentially says, whenever we leave a humble person, we never, we leave their presence. We never think, um, oh, how humble they were. We think, really, if you think about it, we think about how interested they were in us. Meaning, they forgot themselves 
and they were interested in the other, interested in the other person before them. And that is what Paul is calling these Philippians to, to this Christian humility to be other-focused. This is what Jesus called us to in Luke 9.23 when he says, we are to daily take up our cross, deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. It is the way of self-denial and humility and looking to others' interests before our own. And he's, so who are these others? Well, the Philippians, it's their brothers and sisters in their local congregation. We know also then by application, that's the others in our midst of our friends and family and mothers and fathers and kids and wives and husbands and uh, people in the community, our co-workers, our employees, our employer. But also others includes the little ones in the womb. Now, our culture doesn't think they're others. They think they're things. They're just, uh, just like a mole that's growing on your body or just like a kid- kidney that can be removed. They don't think that they're others. And as we've already read this morning from Jeremiah 1, 5 to Psalm 123 or 139, that Scripture attests repeatedly that these are others that have been knit in the womb by God. And we know from Genesis 1 and 2 that they're made in the image of God, they're image bearers. And we also know from modern science of embryology that they are distinct total organisms. And we know from philosophy that there's no reason why their size, their level of development, their environment in which they're living, their degree of dependence upon us, none of that should affect their status as others in our midst. And we also know from Scripture that murder is a sin And we also know from Scripture, as my friend studying right now reminded me the other day, he was astonished by how many times in the Old Testament the Israelites are warned against sacrificing their children to idols. So we also know from Scripture that children are a blessing. They're a blessing to their parents. And because of all that, we know that these little ones are are to be loved and to be cared for and to be protected at all costs, short of sin, obviously, but at all costs. And so we have to wrestle with this fact of this Christ-like application of Christ's example to this issue in our life. Are we going to lay down our lives for the sake of the massacred little ones? Come what may regarding how we appear to surrounding culture. There's a term I learned uh, a while back, I don't remember where, but uh, it's called cool shame. You ever heard of cool shame? We all have this fear 
of appearing certain ways to people around us, whether on social media, at work, at school, whatever, in our families. And it's that being shamed because we're not cool. Well, that's got to basically be squashed because we're going to look like fools instead of looking cool if we're going to stand up for the unborn, if we're going to proclaim that they are worthy of our care and our protection and our love. And not just, not just them. I mean, the, the applications of this even exceed the little, littlest ones. And so we have examples of this throughout church history and the way that this has played out. We have contemporary ones. We have uh, ancient ones. Rodney Stark, a, a historian, has pointed out that Christians were known in the early church because infanticide was so predominant. It was called exposure. They would expose men. The men of the house could just say yay or nay to the child that was born. And if they said nay, it was taken out somewhere and left to die. And the early Christians were known, it was called exposure. You're exposing them to the elements. The early Christians were known to go out there and grab them and bring them home and care for them and raise them. Obviously, at the expense of their life, of their time, their talents, their treasures, their whole life of raising this little one. Today, you have examples of, uh, reminded of David Platt at Church of Brook Hills about 10 years ago. They put up all the children in the child service um, kind of protection agency or whatever it was called in the Birmingham area and had, you know, an exact finite number. And he called his church to go foster and adopt every single one of them. And they took off to go do it. Uh, to either foster or adopt. And just basically, that's going to affect a culture. All of a sudden, every kid in the system has a home to be in. Um, I've had friends that have adopted, you know, five children, sometimes more. I've seen guys on uh, YouTube, different pastors I know and stuff like that, that go in and plead at abortion clinics for women to, to not terminate or kill their babies, uh, preaching the gospel to them, but also pleading with them to the point of saying, I will adopt your child. Right, like right here, let's go. I will, or, or our church will take care of all your medical expenses. And these are tatted up radical, radical pastors. Like, I will pay for all your medical expenses. I have 100000 in savings. I'll pay for all your medical expenses so that you don't, A, take the life of this little one and kill and extinguish the life of this image bearer. And two, you then don't have to bear the guilt of doing that. And we are doing it here and seeking to help these pregnancy centers by giving of our treasure, by giving of our time, by giving of our talents as well. I knew that, uh, I knew that first point was going to be <laughs> super long. So I'll be, I'll be quick with these second two points. Um, 
but his life for others is good news for sinners. His life for others is good news for sinners. So ending in verse 8, he says, even to death on the cross, he's obedient to even death on the cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. And this is for our salvation, even death on the cross. The cross by itself, we know, just in and of itself, wouldn't mean anything because crucifixions happened regularly. That's how the Romans executed people. But we know from Scripture that it's death on the cross, 1 Corinthians 15.3, he died for our sins. His death on the cross was in the place of sinners. He was an innocent one who stepped in and took the place of as a substitute for the guilty ones, completely other-focused and worried about the interests of other people. The, innocent, the perfectly innocent one taking the place of the guilty ones so that, he, so that they may become the innocent ones in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. That God made him who knew no sin to be sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. The, guilt, the, the guilty ones might become the righteousness of God. Then he says that he exalted him and gave him a name that is above every name. And we know that this goes through the resurrection and God raising Jesus from the dead. Then we have the ascension into heaven. Then we have his exaltation to the right hand of the Father over everything that is. What this means is, is that Jesus is Lord. This is how the early church one primary way they understood this, Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord and government is not Lord. No matter what the government says by fiat of statutes and laws, that isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the one that we seek to worship and we seek to imitate and live in a sacrificial way in a response to. And Jesus is Lord in not our simple wants and desires. As we know from the book of Romans that we're no longer slaves to sin. Sin and our sin's desires, simple desires are not our Lord anymore and Jesus is. Which that'll squash those quarrels and those conflicts that James talks about when he says our passions war within us. Well, those passions get placed under the lordship of Jesus. And then we, get, we begin to look at the interests of others before everybody else's. So husbands, you know, do you love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up, to her, up for her? Are you living in a sacrificial way for her? Wives, are you loving your husband in a sacrificial way? I know we're really hard to love sometimes. As y'all probably have the hardest, you know, calling. Uh, mom and dad, I know you're tired of parenting. Um, and you're called to, to love your, your children. And, you know, I woke up this morning, my elbow hurt, hurt my foot hurt, my neck hurt. You know, you're like, man, this is, this is a long haul. But we're called to lay down our lives for those around us because that's what Jesus did and not be slaves to our own desires and live in a conceited way. And then my last point, 
his life for others is our present and future hope. Verse 10, it says, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is our, his life for us is our present and future hope. That's why we can live with hope because called to live in this sacrificial way for the sake of others because Christ did that for us and our salvation then calls us to imitate that and that quite literally will mean for many people and has laying down their physical life for the sake of the gospel as Jake and Bryson and 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 Mr. Norville or in Africa doing things like that. Some people have had to go into situations where their lives were in danger and their lives were taken from them. We have brothers and sisters in Christ that are persecuted across the world for their faith in Jesus and face death and do die because of their faith in Jesus. We are called to live in the exact same way, even in the culture in which we live, even within our families and in our churches, and in our schools, and in our work, and in our communities of living in a way that is laying down our life for the sake of others, of thinking of their interests before all others, because Jesus is Lord. So he says, they'll confess that Jesus is Lord, and who will? Every knee. Every knee in heaven, every knee on earth, every knee under the earth, every conceivable human habitation, every conceivable human person that's ever been or ever will be will have to bow the knee. And this means that some will bow the with spontaneous ecstasy and adoration of Jesus and others with grudging shame and resentment and mourning. This is good news for those of us now who have trusted and turned to Jesus. This is bad news for those who thought that there were no others in the world. Hitler, Stalin, our culture, people in our culture that have taken the 60 million, the lives of 60 million little ones in the womb. That's bad news for them because every sin will be justly judged by a perfect and holy God. Justice will be accomplished. And that's good news for us who have turned to Jesus because we know our sins are forgiven for what Christ has done. And it's good news for us now and great hope for us now in the future because this alludes to this idea even in Christ's judgment of sin and injustice there's going to be an ultimate renewal and restoration of all things Revelation 21 talks about a new heaven and a new earth where Jesus reigns all wrongs will be made right and every tear will be wiped away as Sam Gamgee asked in The Lord of the Rings, 
he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And the answer to that now is yes. Everything sad that has happened has become untrue. And everything sad that has happened and every evil that's been done will be justly judged by God and made right. As C.S. Lewis says, some mortals say of some temporal suffering, no future bliss can make up for it. Not knowing that heaven, once attained, will work backwards and turn every agony into glory. So this whole passage is summed up. Worship Jesus, be like Jesus, seek humility, and then he says at the end there, to the glory of God, and leave the glory to God, not to ourselves in our own conceit and our own passions, but leave the glory to God. I want to leave you with a, a quote that I read often at funerals. And this is how it really comes home for us in our daily lives. Because we're not all, you know, many of us probably aren't all going to take off into living in a jungle in Africa, you know, in a jungle in South America or living in Africa. And in our mind, what we think is like really living in a sacrificial way. But life is hard in general. You know, ask Darla just having to live with me every day <laughs> so, um, and just and getting our kids to church this morning. Indy um, Wilson in his book, it's a phenomenal book called Death by Living. I read this quote at funerals a lot. So it's a book called Death by Living. We actually, <laughs> our lives are what calls our, causes our death, whether we know it or not. So he says, lay down your life. Your heartbeats cannot be hoarded. Your reservoir of breaths is draining away. You have hands, blister them while you can. You have bones, make them strain. They can carry nothing in the grave. You have lungs, let them spill with laughter. With, with an average life of 78.2 years in the U.S., I have around 250,000 conscious hours remaining to me in which I could either be smiling or scowling rejoicing in my life, in this race, in this history, or moaning and complaining about my troubles. I can be given my fingers, my back, my mind, my words, my breaths, to my wife, to my children, to my neighbors, or I can grasp after the vapor and the vanity for myself, dragging my feet, afraid to die, therefore afraid to live, and like Adam, I will still die in the end. It reminded me of a quote by one of my uh, favorite theologians, Stanley Harawas. He says, we just want to, we do everything we can to try to get out of life alive. <laughs> and it's like, I'm not trying to be crude or morbid. I even had that written. I'm not trying to be morbid, but guess what? We're not getting out of this alive unless Jesus comes back before then and so the question for us is for whom or for what are we in our lives down is it for Christ and his kingdom and our neighbors that includes everyone or is it for our own passions and our own desires and our own conceited self-centeredness because the beautiful thing about 
following Jesus and laying our lives down for him and for our neighbors is in the end, we gain it all back because we'll be resurrected from the dead. So we gain it all back. And that's why we can lay it all down. So let's lay it all down for him. For any of you in here that don't know Jesus, that haven't put your faith in Jesus, I'll be up front. Um, We talked about kind of a tough subject today with abortion and everything. But you know what's so beautiful about the gospel is that there's no sin that Jesus' blood cannot cover. Romans 8.1 says, there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So you can come to Christ and be forgiven and be reconciled to God and therefore have no condemnation no matter what you've done, period. And so I invite you to come today. I'll be up here. You can talk to me. And if you know Christ, let us all continue to behold the beauty of who, who Jesus is and thinking and imitating, thinking about that and imitating him in the way we love one another and the way we love our families and the way we love the people in our community and the way we fight um, for the lives of the little ones and the most vulnerable uh, in our culture. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning, your kindness and your grace that you've allowed me to even get up here and open your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in revealing yourself to us in your word. We thank you that Jesus came and he laid down his life for our salvation as a free gift for those that simply put all of their trust in him and turn from their sins. So Lord, I ask you to move in our midst to draw people to yourself. And for those of us that are in Christ, that you would uh, empower us by the Holy Spirit to, to give our lives for the sake of others because Jesus gave his life for our sakes. In Jesus' name, amen.